Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Kenneth Pargament is a professor of psychology at the Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Sure. One of your professional interests appears to have been or is in the role and place of religion in psychotherapy. For many of us, including the exploration and use of religion or spirituality, is not in the usual application of clinical mental health practice. Sometimes it is even considered to be too unscientific. So, sir, what brought you, what persuaded you to take a look at and bring attention to the role of religiosity in mental health? Well, as psychologists, we're trained to look for topics that have emotional power for people. And where there's religion, there's emotion. Where there's emotion, there's power. It can work in either way. No one is neutral when it comes to religion or spirituality. Even the atheist will have strong, powerful feelings about atheism or even feelings of anger towards the God that he or she doesn't believe in. So that was, I thought, intriguing. There's so much emotional power, and yet psychologists and other mental health professionals have largely ignored this topic. So that was one of the key triggers for me of becoming interested in this. You mentioned in one of the articles the notion of religious struggle, and I'd like you to explain that if you could, please. Well, we tend to think of traumas and transitions in life as impacting people emotionally, physically, socially. But the biggest challenges in life can also impact people spiritually. When we face issues of life and death, issues of unfairness, injustice, it can throw our whole religious framework. Our deepest beliefs and values can be really shaken and even shattered. And these are times that many people experience fundamental religious struggle. We, we find that religious struggles have really powerful implications for people's health and well-being. So religion in some ways augments or certainly sometimes it can do what psychotherapy cannot. Well, overall, in general, religion is a really potent resource for people, especially when they're experiencing difficult times through beliefs and practices and rituals and relationships. People are able to find answers for the seemingly unanswerable consolation when they may feel inconsolable. They're able to find a response to human frailty and finitude and limitations. So, yeah, I think religion can offer things that other resources in life are unable to do. They help people come to terms with human limitations. I think that's so critical because I know in my practice so often I will see someone, a classic example will be someone who's in their late 70s or early 80s and never really gave any thought to the fact that they're going to get older. Their life has been focused on money and other material items. And all of a sudden they're faced with a situation that no one can fix. They're getting older and they have no spiritual or religious or philosophical basis to look at what's happening in their life. I, I would imagine this is what exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, they really, in some, they may be de- well-developed in other areas in terms of their emotionally, socially, physically, but the spirituality may have been left behind. And then they become really vulnerable then when they do face situations that call for, I think, a deeper type of response or raise these fundamental existential issues, and they don't have the tools to help them deal with aging or loss or profound threats such as the, the realization that we're going to die. One of the terms that we all grew up with when we went to school was the concept of the biopsychosocial person. But what I hear you saying is that we should add another domain to that. Perhaps we should call it the psychospiritual intervention. 
Yeah, I think that term is actually coming into vogue now. And some people say psychospiritual. Some people use the even longer term of biopsychosocial-spiritual. That's quite a mouthful. That's quite a, it's long. <laughs> yeah, but I think the point is that we're not simply biological, psychological, or social beings. There's a spiritual dimension to us. There's a deeper dimension to who we are, and that we really can't fully understand human nature or really help people through the full range of life's problems if we neglect this dimension or treat it like a taboo. Why do you think, shall we call the group traditional or non-pastoral mental health counselors and therapists, why are they having such a hard time bringing this into their practice? Well, you know, there's a gap between mental health professionals and the rest of the United States, at least in some ways, and I mean this quite literally, that uh, health professionals are abnormal. We're a weird group in the sense that we don't represent the larger population. Mental health professionals as a group are far less likely to believe in God or be involved in religious practices than the general population in the United States. So I think in some ways mental health professionals underestimate the significance and power of religion for many people. So I think that's one piece of it. The other part of it is I think there's just a tremendous lack of training and education in this area. The average number of courses that health professionals have on the topic of religion and spirituality in their graduate education is zero. There is, for most people, no training in this area. So when patients raise a religious or spiritual issue, health professionals just don't know what to do, and they may change the subject or steer it to safer ground. So the psychotherapist could be missing what is actually a very good therapeutic tool. Well, I think so, and the research is becoming quite clear that for many people, religion is a, a potent resource for helping them through life's ups and downs. So when we overlook it as a salient resource, we're really missing something that our patients, the people we work with, would naturally draw on. And the patients know that. I've had, I've had more than one patient has said to me, they may not have mentioned anything about religion for months and months, and they may bring it up months down the road, and I say kind of, well, what took you so long? And they said, well, we didn't think you'd be interested. After all, you're a psychologist. And that's, I think, not an inaccurate reading. There's the understanding that health professionals may not be particularly interested in religion, so patients don't talk about it a whole lot. Hmm. That's, that's very troubling, because I can see situations where, to get back to your term of religious struggling, when people are looking for some, some sort of connection or some sort of dealing with, with guilt or whatever, in traditional psychoanalysis, or if, if they're getting the analytic notion, we look at what caused the guilt, but we may not be able to resolve it. And if we don't look at the spiritual aspect of a person's life, it could come across as a treatment failure, but it's not really a treatment failure. It's just incomplete treatment. Well, I think that's a good way to put it. But incomplete treatment sometimes can lead to failure when there's a resource that's there. If only we were willing to ask the right questions and tap into it. I've had cases myself of people who were experiencing, say, post-traumatic stress disorder, and I tried to treat it through traditional secular kinds of methods, and it, I wasn't particularly successful. And only when I was able to really understand the kind of religious impact of PTSD and draw on some religious resources and address the underlying profound spiritual struggles was I able to make any progress. So I think there's some evidence that we really can't afford to neglect that dimension of treatment. And, and when we are incomplete that way, we do fail. And by the flip side, if someone has no religious basis, no spirituality, that's a pretty good peek into their psyche as well. Yeah, even though I think for most of us, 
the metaphor I use is that we're onions. I think there are very few of us who grew up in our culture who have no stance or attitude towards religion and spirituality. And so at one level, they may have their early childhood memories from going to a church or a synagogue or conversations with other family members who are religious or listening to something on television, and it stays with them. And then they grow up and they develop other attitudes and kind of layers of the onion where they may then develop a, a rejection of religion or spirituality. But that doesn't mean the earlier layers are gone. And again, sometimes you find people, patients in therapy, who are surprised to have strong religious or spiritual feelings, positive or negative, come up through treatment. That, and these might be spiritual feelings they had no idea were even there. Do you find that there's a hesitancy on the part of, again, we'll call it the traditional mental health community, and I may be blaming them a bit too much, but for the moment we'll accept that, that there is a sense that if someone runs, and I use the word intentionally, runs into religion, that they're actually just looking for a safety net, someone to take care of them, and they don't have responsibility for whatever is ailing them? Well, that is the traditional stereotype Freud talked about and Marx talked about religion as a defense, religion as a crutch, religion as an opiate, just a safe haven to protect people from the confrontation with the dark terrors of reality. But research studies, and we've done some of these ourselves, have seemed to show that those stereotypes just don't hold up very well. Actually, people who are more religious tend to be quite active problem solvers and tend to seek out meaning in situations. They seek out intimacy with others. They try to solve problems in very direct ways. It's not to say that you can't find people who are looking to their faith for an escape, for just a, a, in a way of kind of deferring all responsibility for problems onto God. We can find that, but that's not the norm. The norm is more religion as an active resource and a really powerful tool for people facing problems. And the norm for most people, the great majority of people when it comes to religion, is that it is not the fundamentalistic, dogmatic preacher who is directing people to act one way or another. No, that's another stereotype, that people are kind of brainwashed or that people are giving up their own sense of personal identity. Actually, studies seem to indicate, for instance, when people join a sect or a cult, it's attractive for younger people, but most young people will join it for only relatively short period of time. They're seeking, they're questioning, they're trying out new religious approaches, and then they leave and move on. So we have lots of fears and anxiety about religion and spirituality, but when we really test some of these ideas out and bring some of these questions to more scientific scrutiny, we realize that some of our stereotypes are just that, real misconceptions. And the misconceptions obviously leave a trail of, shall we say, ineffective treatment or missed, missed opportunity to make people better and so on. It's, it's a sad situation. Well, that's true. And they sometimes take away from what some of the really important questions are, because there are certainly ways people experience religious problems, and there's no shortage of religious problems in the world today. And those do need attention and research and understanding of how do we address these in treatment. Do children, to the best of your knowledge, do they also respond to investigations of their feelings about God and spirituality? Yeah, I mean, working with kids is so neat in this area. Again, another stereotype was that children don't really become religiously or spiritually mature until they reach adolescence, that for them all they have is Santa Claus and some pretty gross fantasies as children. But, you know, if you sit down and you talk to kids and you do some research with them, you find out that 
they have some very, I think, well-developed religious ideas and questions, and there's a lot to be learned about faith from children. The question that comes to my mind is this, discussing a religious issue easier, harder, more complicated with someone who's Jewish, someone who's Christian, someone who's Catholic. Do we have any data on that at all? Well, it looks like there are certain commonalities across religious groups. For instance, our studies show that people who struggle religiously, so we're talking about people who have who feel like God may be punishing them, they feel like the devil may be at work in their lives, they feel abandoned by God, they feel discontent with other people in their religious communities. Those types of religious struggles are related to poorer health across religious traditions. We find this with Christians, Jews, Muslims, um, Hindus. It looks like it's a pretty consistent finding that people who struggle with their faith are really more likely to experience mental health kinds of problems, physical health problems. But then we also see some differences. We see differences between religious groups that are important to appreciate as well. So it seems like yeah, there are similarities, but there are also differences. You, you mentioned earlier that a lot of mental health people really don't know how to approach this with a patient. How, how should someone do it? How would a, a student learn to approach the issues of religiosity in one of their patients? Well, when I do workshops on the topic of spiritually integrated therapy, I tell practitioners in the audience, don't be intimidated, don't be frightened. Just start with a simple question. Ask your patient, do you see yourself as a religious or spiritual person? And then sit back and let your patients begin to teach you. If you're open to learning about religion and spirituality from your patients and how they are, in fact, expressed in your patients' lives, they're quite willing to teach practitioners all about it but we're the ones who've held our patients back by not asking the question or being uncomfortable about it. But once you open the door and you kind of share your own openness to, to learning about your patient's religious and spiritual life, then we, we can all be educated. That's how patients can teach us. The other thing, obviously, is more formal training through graduate coursework, medical school, internships, residencies. There's a lot of room for development in that area. And I hope it proceeds because I, I do believe this is a very central part of our existence and of, of being human beings. Well, I think so, and, and I think any approach to health care that overlooks the religious dimension will remain incomplete. I had a patient many months ago who was quite sick and a very religious man and a very spunky guy, and I wrote down a quote that I need to just tell you. He said to me, I love it, I'm not going to get better by transference. I'm going to get better by transcendence. Ah, beautiful. It sat me down in a chair, and that's what worked for him. He was a deeply religious man. That's beautiful. But, uh, yeah, but you know, I'd add one thing to it. Sure. For some people, transcendence occurs through relationships. Yes. So He got both. Right. Theologians may, you know, there are some theologians who've said that the, the closest approximation of God that we can experience on earth is the sense of love and caring we can have for each other that you can express through family, but I think also through through treatment that's done in, in a loving, caring way. So it seems that in some respects so simple. We're simply inquiring about another dimension, another domain in a person's life. And in that, there is a tremendous amount of opportunity, rich material, to understand what, what their struggles are really all about. Well, I think so. It, but it takes some, it, it kind of, it's a simple thing to do, but it's also a profound thing to do because to ask questions and to be willing to be taught by patients, you have to recognize that you don't know. You have to recognize there's a need for humility here 
And that's another thing where our training tends to fall short. We, we, I don't think we do a great job of training humble practitioners who, who say, teach me, I need to learn, I don't know. But I think it really is the case, particularly in the religious realm, that health practitioners, we're particularly illiterate when it comes to religious and spiritual matters, and our patients often know a lot more in this area than we do. So we need to be taught. As, as we're talking right now, what comes to my mind is the idea that we're asking about the entirety of the person, not just their symptoms. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the symptoms need to be understood in a larger context. And symptom within a symptom for someone from, oh, I don't know, a particular Christian group can mean something quite different than a symptom from someone from a Native American tradition. So, and, and to neglect the context and the meaning of the symptom to the patient, I don't think we can be very effective. So if someone goes into the religious realm, learns about their spirituality, how they look at things religiously, philosophically, you use two terms which really, I think, capture the, the essence here. One, it's very simple to do, and two, it can be incredibly profound. That's a very nice way of putting it, simple but profound. Interesting. Kenneth Pergamont is a professor of psychology at the Bowling Green State University in Ohio, and we've been talking about the role of religion in psychotherapy and how this is an area of healing and exploration that most non-pastoral mental health practitioners need to learn to more fully use when appropriate, of course. Doctor, so much, we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. Bye-bye.